starting at verse 1. I say the truth in Christ, I lie not, my conscience also bearing me witness in the Holy Ghost, that I have great heaviness and continual sorrow in my heart, for I could wish that myself were accursed from Christ for my brethren, my kinsmen, according to the flesh, who are Israelites, to whom pertaineth the adoption and the glory and the covenants and the giving of the law and the service of God and the promises. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. May the Lord bless us in the reading and hearing of it and now in the preaching of it and hearing as well. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we pray that you might give us a knowledge of your holy law and the manner in which you delivered it to your people so that we might grow in our appreciation for the goodness that you have shown to us grafted into this olive tree. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. <clears throat> we continue our study of the Israelites' privileges. Looking now at the giving of the law. Last week, we considered the dispensation of Moses, that it was a continuation or a codicil of God's testament made with Abraham. In some ways, merely a fulfillment of the promise to Abraham and others as an expansion and enlargement of that same covenant and testament. We saw that God's covenant or God's testament has both promises and precepts. It has one part where God makes promises of what he will do and it has another part in which God says, here's what you must do as those incorporated in my promise. We saw that there are many things in the Christian faith that God's people make as opposites, which, if wisely ordered, are seen to promote one another as the law and the gospel, the promise and the precepts. God gives these to us in his testament. Now let's look at Deuteronomy chapter 4. Please open your Bibles to Deuteronomy 4, page 204 of your pew Bibles, as we'll look today at the giving of the law. We'll read Deuteronomy 4, verses 10 through 14. Especially the day when thou stoodest before the Lord thy God in Horeb, when the Lord said unto me, Gather me the people together, and I will make them hear my words, that they may learn to fear me all the days that they shall live upon the earth, and that they may teach their children. And ye came near and stood under the mountain, and the mountain burned with fire unto the midst of heaven, with darkness and clouds and thick darkness. And the Lord spake unto you out of the midst of the fire. Ye heard the voice of the words, but saw no similitude, only ye heard a voice. <clears throat> and he declared unto you his covenant, which he commanded you to perform, even ten commandments, and he wrote them upon two tables of stone. And the Lord commanded me at that time to teach you statutes and judgments, 
that ye might do them in the land whither ye go over to possess it. Now, having looked at verses 10 through 13 last week, we will focus our attention on verse 14. We looked especially at verse 13 last week concerning the covenant, which is those features of covenantal life that God requires duties of his people, principally the Ten Commandments or keeping the moral law. But now notice verse 14. At the same time, he says, as God gave the mountain fiery law on Horeb, the Ten Commandments, at that same time, the Lord commanded Moses to teach you, he says, statutes and judgments that you might do them in the land whither ye go over to possess it. First then, the Lord commanded me at that time. How do we conceive of the Bible? Is it that Moses was a wise man and he had studied the ancient wisdom of Egypt and then he kind of took that ancient Egyptian wisdom together with the Abrahamic tradition and he kind of jumbled it all together and he came up with the five books of Moses. Is that what happened? No. God commanded me. He didn't say, Look, go observe the laws of Hammurabi. Go observe the Hittites. Go look at some ancient Near East literature and come up with some good, you know, middle-of-the-way commandments that kind of make sense to people. Is that what he said to do? No. God gave a divine charge to Moses to write down statutes and judgments, to give them laws. The apostles tell us that God carried along the prophets by his spirit, that it was the spirit of Christ that spoke in them, that they were passive in the production of the Old Testament, that God was active, that he was speaking. In fact, when we read in the New Testament, it says it is written and God said, it all means the same thing. God spoke. It's written down by prophets at his command, and it is the very word, the oracles of God, proceeding out of his mouth. Now God commanded Moses at the same time as he was given the Ten Commandments from God in heaven, writing with his finger upon tablets of stone, he was given this command to teach you, he says, statutes. Now, a statute is a law that stands. Generally speaking, the statutes of Moses are considered to be those laws of worship. What rules and tasks are prescribed by God so that you may know how to please God himself? What is worship? Is it man reaching into the depths of his psyche and figuring out what he needs? his felt needs, and then he'll build a manner of worship that satisfies his felt needs? Is that what worship is? Not unless you worship yourself. Not unless you worship and serve the creature rather than the creator. God says worship is this. You hear me? I give you a statute and you do it. For the glory of my name, for the greatness of my power, that's a statute of worship. The other is called idolatry. Your felt needs, 
seeker-sensitive, filling up what I lack and I need is idolatry. It has nothing to do with what God says worship is. God commands through his prophets and apostles statutes. Here is a law. Here is a prescription of tasks that you ought to do, rules that you ought to observe, in order to show that you believe I'm actually worth something, worth ship. Now, in the Old Testament, worship was done as God commanded, or he would judge them, and it was done through the merits and mediation of Jesus Christ. Oh, but you say, Christ hadn't come yet, or some might argue that. Well, Christ wasn't there yet. They had the gospel played out in their worship. How could they come to God? Through a priest. And when that priest went on their behalf, what did he have? Blood, grain, oil, water. Symbolizing what? Cleansing in the blood of Christ. Cleansing by the power of the Holy Spirit. God's providence in giving you bread from heaven and providing you an inheritance that grows that grain that you turn into bread. God provided it all of his great bounty. All this is gospel. God gave them a manner of worship so that he might be glorified in their obedience and in the truth that they would believe as they enacted that worship. The Lord commanded Moses at the same time as he gave them the Ten Commandments to teach them such standing laws of worship. But notice, what else did God give them in commandment by Moses? Judgments, statutes, and judgments. Now, a judgment in the Bible, in the language of the Old Testament, is generally an ordinance for civil government. What is a crime and what is not? And once you have ascertained whether a behavior is a crime, what should you do about it? What's a proper penalty or punishment? What should you do with this type of crime or that type of crime? Are all crimes the same? We find out, no. How? Because God gave judgments. He, as a supreme magistrate, said, you who are my lieutenants that I call gods, you must judge on my behalf. If a man comes before you and he seduces a young woman and she is unattached or betrothed, here's the punishment. If, however, he rapes or forces a woman who is betrothed, here is the punishment, death. If two people commit adultery, if somebody blasphemes the name of God, if somebody takes the life of someone else, if somebody profanes the Sabbath, if someone strikes his father or his mother, what are you to do? Death. Hold a trial, hear the facts, listen to the witnesses, make a judgment. If they're found guilty, death. Judgments. Ordinances of forensic effect. What is a crime? And how should you punish such crimes? The golden reins of civil justice, we call this. These judgments God gave through Moses, along with the manner of their worship. Why? Well, so that we could put them in a book, hide the book someplace where nobody goes, and never hear it, right? No. That ye might 
do them. This is a purpose clause. When you read the words, that ye might, it's giving you why. Why am, am I given this commandment to teach you Israel so that you may know all these statutes of worship and these judgments of civil life? Why were those given to you? That ye might do them. Actual obedience. Not merely knowing the truth, but doing your duty. And not just in your thoughts, but in your words, in your deeds. Not merely museum showpieces to keep in your head, only to be grasped with propositions in the mind, but that ye might do them. In the land, whither ye go over to possess it. This is the land of God's promise. This is the land that God swore and said, To thee I will give this land and to thy seed. It's part of God's testament. This is the promissory part. One of the larger promissory parts of God's testament with Abraham. Now he says that the land is where they go to possess it. And this word possess is yaresh, yaresh in Hebrew. It means to seize, to dispossess, to take possession of, to inherit, to disinherit, or to be an heir. In the land, whither ye go over to be my heirs, to disinherit the Amorites, to take possession as my heirs. The Septuagint has the word klera namain. A kleros is a calling or a lot, and a namas is a law. So klera namas is where you have a law that appoints your inheritance or your lot. And generally, it would refer to a legal right from a last will and testament. I have given you, as my heirs, a land of promise. And my goal for you is that when you inherit my promise in the gospel, that you would keep my commandments in the law. You see how these two go together? You have a promise and a land. Now, when you inherit that land, keep my statutes, keep my judgments. Do them. Not just be taught in your mind, these statutes, but rather practice them in your lives. I note then this doctrine that beside the moral law, God gave Israel statutes and ceremonies of worship and also judicial laws. Beside the moral law, God gave Israel statutes or ceremonies of worship and judicial laws. Some call them forensic. Our confession calls them judicial. It means the same thing. How in the court, the forum, how should I make a judgment? Forensic means relating to the forum or civil justice. Judicial means the same thing. God gave a moral law in context. That is verse 13, the two tables of stone, the Ten Commandments. And 
At the same time, verse 14 informs us, he gave two other types of laws. And this is in fact the case. If you would like to turn back, let's look at Exodus 20 really briefly. You're going to see something that is exactly what he's talking about. Exodus 20, verse 1, And God spake all these words, saying, I am the Lord thy God, which have brought thee out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. What? Thou shalt have no other gods before me. There's the first commandment. Second, thou shalt not make unto thee any graven image. Third, verse 5, or excuse me, verse 7, thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain. Verse 8, remember the Sabbath day. Verse 12, honor thy father and thy mother. We call these the ten commandments. Now look at chapter 21. Now these are the what? Judgments. These are the civil statutes. Okay, first, you buy a Hebrew servant. He'll serve you six years. The seventh, he goes out free. Came in by himself, leaves by himself, came in married, goes out married, etc. Servant wants to stay, you can let him stay. Here's the way you get him in. Verse 7, if a man sell his daughter. Verse 12, he that smiteth a man, so that he die, shall be surely put to death. Verse 15, he that smiteth his father or his mother, shall be surely put to death. Verse 16, he that stealeth a man and selleth him, or if he be found in his hand, he shall be surely put to death. Verse 17, he that curseth his father or his mother shall surely be put to death. Do you see the difference? Thou shalt do this, thou shalt not do that. Now hear what does he say? This action receives this punishment. This arrangement is regulated by these laws. You see this? These are the judgments. These are where God says, here's how to live your civil life. Is it the same as chapter 20? No. In fact, Moses makes a distinction that God wrote with his own finger, by his almighty power, without the help of Moses, on those two tables of stone, the Ten Commandments. Did he do that with the rest? Did he do that with these? No. He commanded Moses, you write this down, so that they may do these judgments when they go into the land that I've promised when they inherit by my testament, I'm going to give you these judgments that you ought to observe. Now, what about the rest of the book of Exodus? 22, same thing. 23, same thing. God then gives them government. Chapter 24, now what? Mercy seat, 25, candlestick, worship, right? Statutes of worship. At that same time, God says, as I gave you the Ten Commandments, I gave you judicial laws, I gave you laws and statutes of worship. God openly published the Ten Commandments, writing them before the face of all Israel. They could hear his voice. They saw no similitude. They could hear God publishing those Ten Commandments. And as he published them with his voice, he wrote them with his finger on those two tables of stone. Then God gave them laws of civil justice in chapters 21, 22, and 23, showed them how to govern their commonwealth. Then he gave them laws and statutes of worship, 25 and following. God gave them 
the moral law, the Ten Commandments, plus other things. Let us wisely distinguish the laws of Moses. Is this law given to them as men created in the image of God? Or is it a law that God said for you in this place at that time? We must distinguish these things. And here God distinguishes them himself. Here's the moral law. Now there are these other statutes for your sojourn in the land of promise. Our confession says much the same thing. Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 19, paragraph 3. Beside this law, commonly called moral, God was pleased to give to the people of Israel as a church under age ceremonial laws containing several typical ordinances, etc. It says these are abolished or abrogated under the New Testament. God gave them a moral law and God gave them what we call a ceremonial law, laws of worship. They prefigured Christ. They showed them how to worship God in an acceptable manner. And when Christ appeared, do you think we need those any longer? Of course not. Once you have the substance, the shadows flee away. You don't need this, these shadows of the law when Christ has appeared. Then, paragraph 4 of the same chapter in our confession. To them also, as a body politic, he gave sundry judicial laws, which expired together with the state of that people, not obliging any other now further than the general equity thereof may require. Now here we see the judgments. God gave them judgments. And notice, let's turn back just for example's sake to chapter 21 of Exodus. Now, these are the judgments which thou shalt set before them. If thou buy an Hebrew servant, six years he shall serve, and in the seventh he shall go out free for nothing. Let me ask you a question. Are the Germans bound by this law? Are Americans bound by this law? Does this law bind all nations to never have a Hebrew slave longer than six years? No. Could you make some conclusion that each nation could make a similar law about their own people? Sure, absolutely, yeah. This nation, members of it, you don't take them in perpetual servitude. Everybody on the outside of your nation, you can take them in perpetual servitude. Is that a fair application? Okay, so there's some general equity, isn't there? Is it exactly that we should observe this statute as they were commanded in their place at that time? No. He gave them as a body politic, not as men created in the image of God per se, but as men in a particular relation to him in a place at a time that he had designed. And when that state of Israel expired, you know what happened to Exodus 21-2? It expired together with that state. Now turn over to the next page. To verse 17. He that curseth his father or his mother shall surely be put to death. Let me ask you a question. 
does that bind them so far as they were a peculiar people in a specific place at a specific time? No. You know what it binds them as? Men created in the image of God. Honor thy father and thy mother. What is that? One of the moral laws, isn't it? Does that have general equity in it? Absolutely it does. Turn over to Matthew chapter 15. Oh, but you see, those laws are not repeated in the New Testament. So? But this one is. This one's repeated. Oh, by that gentle Jesus they like to talk about, who set aside all those meany laws of Moses in the Old Testament. Look there at Matthew 15, verse 5. Or let's actually take it a little higher. Verse 4. For God commanded, saying, Honor thy father and mother, and... Oops, that made its way into the New Testament. He that curseth father or mother, let him die the death. But ye say, Whoever shall say to his father or his mother, It is a gift, by whatsoever thou mightest be profited by me, and honor not his father or his mother, thus have ye made, what? The commandment of God. There's one commandment he's talking about. What is it? Was the fifth commandment. What does he include as part of the fifth commandment? He that curseth father or mother, let him die the death. Do you see how Jesus thought of the Ten Commandments and the general equity of those judgments that God gave? If the principle it's founded on is immovable, so is the judgment. The general equity of that statute binds all men at all times as one application of the fifth commandment. God gave them a moral law. God gave them statutes of worship and judgments of civil life. All of those statutes of worship, unless God specifically tells us to do what they did, we had better not mingle with them. We had better not play with that fire. Those judicial judgments, if they have general equity, Gentiles must observe them. If we observe the statutes of worship, we Judaize. If we neglect those statutes and judgments of civil life that are of general equity, what are we behaving as? Men created in the image of God? No, we behave as beasts. Wicked, godless beasts. Another doctrine. The Israelites were privileged and blessed to have God for their lawgiver and judge. That's what Paul's saying in Romans 9, isn't it? He's enumerating blessings and privileges. Is it a blessing to have God as your lawgiver? Well, I'm free from the law. Jesus died. Come on. Why should I observe God's commandments? Is that a blessing? That is a curse. Paul is enumerating for us the blessings of his kinsmen after the flesh to have God from heaven give you his laws. And to the extent that we Gentiles 
have a similar or a superior privilege to them, we have God for our lawgiver. Has God given Gentiles statutes of worship? Careful how you answer that. If you say no, you say we have less privilege than they do. Is this a better covenant on better promises with better privileges? Yes. So do we have God for our lawgiver? Yes, we do. In our worship of God, he has given us statutes and said, this is what you must do in order to honor me. Yes, we have God for our lawgiver. Laws so simple, yet so profound and artless, with less outward glory, but more fullness, evidence, and spiritual efficacy. They had lots of ceremonies, lots of washings, lots of this, lots of that. What do we have? This short list, a couple things. Is there power in that short list? Oh, you bet there is. There is massive spiritual power in those little list that God gave to the Gentiles. Now, do Christian nations or such Gentile nations as profess to own the Savior Jesus, do they have any moral guidance from God? No, you see, that was the Jews. That was a theocracy. And they had God sitting there making their laws. Isn't that bad? No, that's very good. That is a privilege. And do you think that Christian nations have no laws from God that they ought to observe, that they ought to enforce? Do they have no moral guidance as to what is a crime and they can just make it up out of thin air? Oh, today you have to wear a mask or you're a criminal and tomorrow you have to get a shot and make sure you don't homeschool your kids and don't say that sodomites are bad. Um, what can we come up with now, you see? Hasn't God given Gentiles some moral guidance? Some people suggest, some of these what I would call civil antinomians, they suggest that Romans 13 is given to the Gentiles, those who don't know God, the heathen emperors of Rome. That's what they say. Then they say, look, see, Rome had guidance as to what they should punish. Well, now you become a Christian. Do you actually know what you should punish anymore? Or did God say, stop listening to me when I spoke about those things? It's nonsense. Of course he speaks to Gentiles. He speaks to us in his holy word. And when we read civil laws, we should take them as such and ask ourselves a question. Did this address them as mere Jews? Or did it address them as men created in God's image? Because if it addressed them as men created in God's image, the gospel does not unimage us and make us animals. If the heathen Roman, armed with the light of nature, knew what crimes to punish, how can a Christian not know? It's ridiculous. And this is why our confession reminds us. God has given us a grid through which to view the laws of Moses. It is called general equity. Is this unique to them? Is it of particular justice? Or is it not unique to them and of general equity, and therefore all nations must observe it? This is a rebuke to the civil antinomians. 
those that make men less than heathens when they become a Christian magistrate, with less wisdom and understanding. Now, back in our Deuteronomy 4 passage, God actually says that when the Gentiles look on and they see these laws that I give you, they're going to say, wow, their nation sure is run well. We want to be like that. If they actually had done it, the Gentiles might have observed, whoa, they really know how to get their children to respect their parents. How do they do that? Well, let me show you. Exodus 21. He that curseth father or mother, let him die the death. You think a lot of kids are going to run around mouthing to their parents, cursing them in their old age, striking them upon the face? No, because what would happen? Buried, gone, that's it. He that striketh his father or his mother shall surely be put to death. You think they're going to go out and do that? No. So respect for authority, respect for God, for his name, for his worship, for his day. Yes, God has laws about that. Let us then properly frame our minds, our expectations, and our civil interactions according to the divine laws of Scripture. If the church would stick to its task, training up a generation of citizens, of voters, of political activists, not to think in terms of godless trash, but to think in terms of divine wisdom, what do you think would happen to our society? Do you think it would improve? Oh, a horrible theocracy would arise. Oh, that's not right. All of our demon worship and godlessness and murdering infants would just disappear. Yes, praise God, it would disappear. That's exactly the point. We must train ourselves, frame our minds, our expectations, our prayers, and our speech to others in or out of office concerning these matters. What are we left with otherwise? Lawlessness, disorder, partial theories, and godless secularism. Thus far, the privilege of the people of God, both the Jews in the old and Christians in the new, to have God for their lawgiver and judge. Let's pray.